morning we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 18, verses 28 to 40. The question we ask is, what is truth? Just by way of uh, introduction, ask anyone today, what is truth? And you're sure to have an interesting conversation. It might be at work, uni, or even around a barbecue. Or maybe you're at a stage where you don't want to even ask because you know that uh, the response might be. It could be laughter, it could be scorn, or maybe that'll be the end of the discussion and you're going to have a very quiet dinner after that. The concept of truth has clearly fallen on hard times. And the consequences, we are seeing the consequences of rejecting it, they are destroying long-held values in our society. What is truth? Now, this, this is one of the most profound and eternally significant questions in the Bible. And yet, it was actually posed by an unbeliever. Pilate. So as we go into, as we continue our series, as we go into John, so far in this chapter, Jesus has already been taken out of the Garden of Gethsemane after being betrayed by one of his own, by Judas. He was then brought, first of all, to Anas, the high priest, uh, the godfather, in whose courtyard Peter denied him three times. The rooster has crowed in fulfilment of Jesus' prophecy and when Peter remembers what Jesus had told him, he cries, he's full of remorse and he goes out into the streets and cries his heart out. Last week we mentioned that in order to convict Jesus, which is what they've been wanting to do for a while now, in order to convict Jesus there had to be a Jewish trial and a Roman trial. The Jewish trial was religious in nature and this is the reason why it started with the high priest Anas. He then sent Jesus to his son-in-law, the current high priest, Caiaphas. And uh, John, the Gospel of John doesn't go into the details of what happened once Jesus left, left Anas, the old high priest, to the current high priest Caiaphas. But Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, goes into some detail. And uh, after Matthew tells us that after a few false witnesses were brought forward, uh, Caiaphas realised he was still very short on evidence to condemn Jesus. So then he put Jesus under oath before God to say whether or not he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. Of course, Jesus had not lie, so he confessed that he was as Caiaphas had said and that he, Caiaphas, would one day see the Son of God sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas was no dummy. He understood Jesus' words. And looking shocked, 
And in disgust, he tore his robes, his garments, and declared that Jesus had spoken blasphemy. And so Caiaphas has all the evidence that he needs to condemn Jesus for blasphemy, the religious trial for blasphemy, because he said he was the Son of God, which, according to Jewish law, merited the death penalty. But since they were under the control of Rome... They could not carry out the sentence of death, so they needed a, a separate civil trial for them to do this. It wouldn't surprise you to know that the Romans couldn't care less about blasphemy charges, but were concerned about peace, peace in the provinces, in their occupied territories. So in order to get the the Romans to execute Jesus, the Jews had to come up with a charge, a civil charge that related, that it was something that was pretty big in order to get Jesus executed. A charge, for example, of insurrection or treason against Jesus. And that is where we find ourselves in our passage this morning. So let's start off talking about the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And by now, it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they didn't enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now this verse has confused quite a few people because the Passover actually had been eaten the, the day before, the night before. So what is, why is this still something that's going to happen when it's supposed to happen already? So many Bible scholars have come up with many different solutions. And I think the best one that fits the scenario is that this actually refers to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which accompanied the Passover. Those, both of those things tended to go together, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. And, and so for, uh, for which it was necessary in order to take part of that, you needed to keep yourself undefiled from leaven. Now, this is why the Jews didn't want to enter the palace of a Gentile, lest by any way, any way, shape or form, they could come across some sandwich which had some unleavened bread and be defiled. Why make such a big deal of this? And and John seems to make a contrast between the sanctimonious piousness over ceremonial defilement on the one hand and yet they were totally unconcerned about the moral guilt of delivering an innocent man up to die. It would be hard to come up with a greater, with a greater uh, illustration of hypocrisy than that. They were concerned about outward cleanliness, but totally unconcerned about the righteousness of God. How can I compare it? Well, it's a bit like putting all your efforts into fixing a, a dripping tap 
you know, that, that dripping tap, and, and you're so concerned about the dripping tap, but you show no concern in repairing the broken pipe that is gushing water right next to it. Don't worry about the pipe, I'm just worried about the, the dripping tap. That's sort of the, the, what this passage is about. With the law, with the law, they are fixated on leaky taps because at least they seem them, they appear capable of fixing leaky taps. It seems to be within their reach. But they have no way of fixing the broken pipes. And God is always looking at the deeper problem, isn't he? Our brokenness. Our brokenness. We, 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 we are fixated on the little speck of dust, right? On somebody else, not on us. While we might have a huge plank of wood in our own eyes. God is always looking at a bigger problem the deeper problem, our brokenness before him, which only he can fix. We can't do it. For that, we need his grace, don't we? For that, we need his grace. Verses 29 to 32, we look at the initial annoyance. Initial annoyance. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If we were not a criminal, they said, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And this took place to fulfil what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So initially, Pilate comes across as someone who's a little bit, you know, just got out of bed in a cranky mood. He's annoyed at having been woken up early in the morning and then suddenly to be thrust into the middle of what, see, what he sees as a religious dispute between Jews. His sarcasm, his response is short. His answers are pointing toward this. Leave me alone. And obviously as, as, as a governor of, as, as an, governor of an occupied territory, he's... First allegiance was toward the Roman Empire, which at this time the Roman Empire was enjoying a, a relative period of calm, of, of, of this calmness in, in, in their occupied territories, known as the Pax Romana. In other words, the Roman peace. The fact that they had to keep the peace by the sword is another matter, but nevertheless, they had peace. But Pilate wasn't always an even-handed man. In fact, earlier in his governorship, uh, Josephus tells us that he uh, he was pretty heavy-handed. He uh, he was you know he was known as a, as a bloodthirsty man, and he wasn't scared of just wielding the sword and to keep the peace. So word got back to Rome, and they said, "Mate, just calm down a little bit, okay? Because the the the, the Jews are." Um, are a little bit upset at your heavy-handed approach and all of this. He, ne- he needed to be a little bit more gentle, you see. 
And the Jews were making it very clear to Pilate that if he wanted to have their support in maintaining peace in Israel, he had better do their bidding, what they are asking him to do. And he knew what these Jews wanted from him, but the issue for him is now that it was starting to bite his conscience. His conscience didn't let him rest that easily. And if the Jews were able to execute anybody, um, if they were capable of doing this, how would they have killed Jesus? They simply would have stoned him, taken him out and stoned him to death. That was the Jewish method of execution. But John explains that to fulfill prophecy, verse 32, to fulfill prophecy, there was a certain way that Jesus would die. If I be lifted up, and he would be lifted up on a Roman cross. Now, it was only after the Jewish leaders recognised that Pilate simply wasn't going to rubber stamp the, the execution of Jesus that they actually had to work a little harder and, and, and actually bring formal civil charges, not religious charges, but civil charges against him. Now, we don't, we don't read about this in the Gospel of John, so for that we, we go to, to Luke chapter 23, verse 2. And in Luke, does the job of actually listing the charges. And this is what it says. It says, and they began to accuse him saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. That's the first charge. He opposes payment of taxes. That's a big no-no to Caesar. And, and claims to be Messiah. The word Messiah to Pilate meant nothing, but the word king certainly did. So that's what they say. He's a king. So at least three things are there. And once these charges, all false of course, uh, except the one of king, which is, which is true. But once these charges were made against Jesus by the Jewish leadership, Pilate had no other choice but to initiate the trial. And this brings us back then to the rest of the chapter that we are looking at in verses 33 to 38. We see in verses 33 to 37, we see Pilate's concern. He is becoming more concerned. So verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace. He summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea or did somebody put you up to this? The others talked to you about me. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. You're your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. 
Now, you see how uh, Pilate locked on to the word king? He didn't lock on to paying taxes or any other stuff. It was the word king. If Pilate was started off the morning being a little bit annoyed, he probably didn't have his coffee. He is now showing definite concern and intrigue. And John goes into, into some, some detail as he describes his exchange between Jesus and, and Pilate, the Roman governor. Because both of these men had very different agendas, very different and opposing agendas. Pilate is now led to believe by the Jewish leaders that this man was a revolutionary leader. He was proclaiming himself a political king, a threat to Rome. But Pilate didn't see that. As Jesus stood in front of him, Pilate didn't see that. Rather than seeing a man befitting the image of a political king, He'd rather saw this unimpressive man with, without any external, external trappings of regal authority or power. Unimpressive externally. But certainly the way that Jesus responded would have caught his attention. Because he spoke with authority. And when Jesus said he was from another place, maybe Pilate's Pilate's brain um, thought maybe he used to be royalty from another country, another territory, and now he was overrun. He was born in a royal family, but now he has no kingdom because he's exiled. That happens, doesn't it? You used to be a king, and now you're nothing. Maybe that's where Pilate's brain goes. Where were his regal clothes, his scepter, his crown? Where were his followers? Jesus didn't fit at all the image of a king, of what a king would look like. And this impacted the way Pilate asked this question that was tinged with a, a strong, now a strong sense of disbelief. And when Pilate asked him, are you a king? Jesus could simply answer yes or no. If he had said no, Pilate would conclude that he was not a king at all. If he had said yes, Pilate would have thought he was a king according to the Jewish standards and that he was a threat to Caesar. Jesus neither affirms nor denies his identity as king, but he responds like a king. He speaks of his kingdom and calmly now focuses the attention on Pilate, asking a question that tests Pilate's heart. The tables are turned. Suddenly, who's on trial? And Jesus, in effect, asks him, he says, are you asking this question personally or on behalf of the Jews or the Romans? 
because Jesus is trying to get to the, to the heart of Pilate's conflicting loyalties. He's muddled up. He's confused now. He must feel like he's, he's the one on trial. And, and, and yes, Pilate had, earlier in his governorship, had messed up. And now he's walking this, this tightrope and somehow he has to behave like a politician who can't afford to, a politician who can't afford to go off script and get too personal on the matter. Where does that take us? Well, it takes us to Jesus' declaration in verses 37 to 38. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And what is truth? retorted Pilate. So Jesus now is, it appears that Jesus is running the show now. He is, he, he continues to walk through this trial on his own terms, not anybody else's. Remember, we started the chapter by saying that Jesus was more like the uh, director of an orchestra. And by using the term truth rather than the word God, I testified to the truth rather than I testified to God, Jesus is using language that a Gentile like Pilate is able to understand. He says, everyone, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, should be able to recognise truth. We need truth in order to survive, in order to exist as a civilization. And while Jesus looks, now he, he perhaps looks like a victim, and Pilate probably saw Jesus as a defendant in a court case, Jesus is in fact taking the part of a witness. So Jesus is asking for Pilate to pass judgment, not on him as a king of the Jews, but on him as a revealer, of truth. It's interesting the word truth. In the Bible, the word truth appears 222 times. 222 times. 22 times, or 10% of the Bible's record of the word truth is found in the Gospel of John. It's a big word in the Gospel of John the word truth. So Pilate gives this cynical, weary answer trying to find a way out of his troubles. He asked Jesus, what is truth? He didn't really want an answer and he didn't wait around to receive one. In essence, what Pilate is telling Jesus is, what is true for you may not be true for me. Don't talk to me about truth, for truth cannot really be known. 
This is the times that we find ourselves in, isn't it? Dismissive. In doing so, Pilate threw away a glorious opportunity to come to know the truth for himself. He was looking at truth in the face, refused to see it and walked away, forever lost in his sins. 2,000 years later, the whole world appears to agree with Pilate's cynicism. What is truth? How many men and women are in hell right now for the same reason? For the same reason. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be confronted by it. Now, according to the dictionary... Truth is that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. Or the body of real things, events and facts. That's according to the dictionary. dictionary. Others, a little bit more subjective, say that truth is a power play, a meta-narrative constructed by the elite for the purpose of controlling the ignorant masses. To some, truth is subjective. The individual world of preference and opinion, what is true for you, is not necessarily true for me. Everybody has their own truth. Still others deny the concept of truth altogether. According to a survey... 67% of adults agree that there is no such thing as absolute truth. 60, that's two-thirds. There is no such thing as absolute truth. What's even worse is that 52%, half of all believing Christians, born-again Christians, think truth is relative. So according to this survey, half of you here this morning would agree that everybody has their own truth. What is true for one person may not be true for another. I'm going to make this interesting. Let's have a bit of fun. Heard of the story of a pastor, uh, Stephen Belinsky who brings into his his class, his discipleship class, he brings into it a jar um, full of lollies. All right? You've seen this before, a jar full of lollies. And then he asks the students to guess how many beans are in the jar. And then he writes down their estimates. All right, these are the estimates, folks. Okay, let's... Okay, how many say that there are 347 beans in the jar? Uh, One. I have one. Uh, How many say 447? Okay, about five, six. How many say 657? 657, okay. 
And how many say 767? Okay. All right. We seem to have one at, at, at the beginning and one at the end. All right. And everybody else is squeezed in the, in the, in the middle. All right. Okay. The actual number is 657. So, well done. Actually, it was the majority of people put their hand up and said 657. Well done. From that distance that you're able to, that's, that's amazing. I'm, I'm, you've added, you, what you've done in that process, you've, you've, you've added the height and, and the circumference and everything else, and you come with your conclusion. Amazing. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm, well done. Then we come to the next question, according to Belinsky, we come to our next question. All right? Favorite songs Bohemian Rhapsody. Secular songs here, okay? Secular song. We're not going into worship songs, all right? Okay, so we've got one for uh, Hey Jude. Hey Jude? Yeah? No? Yesterday? Anybody for yesterday? Yeah? Yeah? What a wonderful world. Yeah? You love that, don't you? Waltzing Matilda? Come on, you Aussies. As a Scotsman, say it likes Waltzing Matilda. All right. Oh, Danny boy? Come on, we're the Irish. All right, and the Scots, okay. Okay. Question is, which one of these is closest to being right? Hmm. Which one is right out of these songs? <laughs> which one is right? Sorry? Okay, thank you. They're all subjective. It's that we, we suddenly jumped into a different category, right? It's a matter of opinion. What's a good favourite song for one person is not a favourite song for another. We all have our preferences according to the style of music, when we were born, and so on and so forth. Next one. Please read this carefully. When you decide what to believe in terms of your faith, is that more like guessing the number of beans or more like choosing your favourite song? Hmm. Is it more like when choosing your faith, is that more like an exact number of beans or more like choosing your favourite song? Who says it's more like choosing number of beans? Who says it's more like choosing your favourite song? 
pretty evenly spread. Yep. <laughs> Uncommitted. That's all I can say. <laughs> you see, if we believe in absolute truth, then we believe that there is one truth, just as there is an exact number of beings, there is an absolute truth. It, it's, it's, it's a vertical. There is no other option. God says it. It stands. Jesus said, I am the truth. I, for one, believe in absolute truth. I believe that black is black, white is white, up is up, down is down, left is left, right is right, boy is boy, girl is girl. I believe absolute truth can be known, it can be learned, it can be taught and passed on. In fact, I preach, I preach from absolute truth, the Word of God. And if you accept these things as truth in your life, you have a standard for living. It's not a matter of opinion and a reason to live. Do you see the reason why to be able to trust the Bible is so important? Psalm 119. Your word is a light unto my path. You you are guided through life, through truth, which is the roadmap. It doesn't give you all these options to to walk. It says, this is the path. This is the narrow road. This is the, the gate of life. In its pages, in the pages of the Bible, we learn about God, about creation, about man, about sin, salvation, good, evil, family. If that foundation is destroyed, man has no basis for truth. There is no truth, then everybody is right and nobody is wrong because everybody has their own idea and opinion about what the truth is. And yet this is the biggest dilemma that we face in our society today. We have two very conflicting views. Truth is not subjective. It is not a cultural construct. It is not an invalid, outdated, irrelevant concept. Truth is the self-expression of God. How each person responds to the truth has eternal significance, let alone all the other benefits that we enjoy today because we are walking in the truth. To reject against the truth of God results in sin, judgment and the never-ending wrath of God. To accept and submit to the truth of God is to see clearly, to open your eyes and to know with certainty and to find life everlasting. And this is the conflict, isn't it? Because the king of this world, Satan, is deceiving, 
is blinded the eyes. And therefore people are exchanging the truth of God. Remember in our miniseries, they're exchanging the truth of God and preferring a lie. Even though they know it's a lie, they prefer to live in the lie. It's less confronting, more comforting. And that brings us to the choice. Verses 28, uh, sorry, verses 38 to 40. And they chose Barabbas. And they chose Barabbas. And, and with this, he went again to the Jews and who were gathered there and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. As I was growing up, having grown up in a Christian family, every time I read this story, it's just one of those that stories that shocked you. There are many stories in the Bible that shock you, but this is particularly one of those that used to... I found hard to comprehend. I asked myself, how could they? How could they? But in the days in which we live today, it is actually not all that surprising. How innocent Christians are being pursued in all areas of life. They're being locked up in other countries... They've been pursued in the media and simply for stating the truth. It is not all that surprising. If it was possible to hang Israel Folau on what he said, many people would be shouting the same thing. The contrast between these two could not be more striking. Jesus, a peaceful, loving teacher and healer. Barabbas, a violent man. The contrast couldn't be greater. One lived for the world to come, the other for this world. There is, there is however, one similarity. Barabbas, his name actually means son of Abba. Son of Abba. Or son of his father. Because Abba means father. Barabbas, son of his father. In John's Gospel, Jesus is also known as the son of the father. See the similarity? Ironically, the false charge that the Jews laid on Jesus, the charge of insurrection and treason, was the very reason Barabbas was in prison. Correctly charged and sentenced. And the crowds knew very well what these men stood for. And they were choosing between two different approaches to freedom, to liberation. Augustine said, The people choose their own path of liberation rather than God's. And they therefore choose not the saviour but the murderer, not the giver of life but the destroyer. What is sad is that every time we choose 
to sin, we're actually doing the same thing. Whether the sin is blatant or deceptive, we are choosing the lie. We prefer the lie. We rebel against our Redeemer. Can I challenge all of us to have a really deep think about this? To not just talk about truth, but be convicted by it. No compromises. The truth is not that hard to work out. Read the Bible. Research it. Love it. Fall in love with God's words. And then you will be able to judge more clearly what is true and what is a lie. May we choose life. May we choose Jesus and his words every time. Every time. Amen.